You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com. Morning. It's good to worship with you all this morning. Uh, my daughter, who is not here, my wife is sick this morning. Uh, our whole neighborhood is gone. And so I'm going to take this opportunity to preach about something about my neighborhood because you can tell stories when people aren't here. My daughter, Emery, so be, be wary if you don't show up. I'm just going to probably look for a story for you. Um, no, I won't do that. Maybe. Possibly not. My daughter, Emery, is two years old and she has this reputation in our neighborhood for being uh, like totally into the good life. If you want to like notice what it looks like to be a child and totally revel in a good life, look at Emery. Braylon, of course, is maybe she's even taught Emery this thing, but in particular, there's this one scene that has epitomized Emery in our neighborhood. And it's if you find her in a hammock, because there are hammocks all over our neighborhood, she will be sitting in the hammock, swinging back and forth, hands behind her head, and she, no joke, will say out loud, Ah, this is the life. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Now, we think it's pretty cute. I think that's cute. We laugh every time she, we hear it. We see her little feet popping out of the hammock, and you can hear her saying this. But the idea of the good life is, is not just some sort of um, thing that children say that we look at and think that's cute, but it's actually one of the most powerful ideas in all human life. This is one of those things that we never actually really think about intentionally, but is probably the most powerful driving and guiding force for most of the decisions, the priorities, the arrangements we make. We have a picture of, ah, that would be the good life. And we work day in and day out toward that picture. Think about this. What is that good life for you? What is it that arranges your priorities, that sets your schedule, that prioritizes the way you use your money, What is that image in your mind that you think, one day I will reach this ultimate end in my life and I will be satisfied? This is what I'm after. We don't, I mean, some of us think about this all the time, but most of us day in and day out, when we clock in at work or when we're going around our neighborhood and we're doing the things we do, we don't have this idea of the good life driving, we don't think about it, but it's actually under the surface driving all of us, these longings, these hopes, these hungers. And these this, this idea of what is a good life, it's not a small question either. It's not just something that um, we can be flippant about. It's occupied, the mystery of it, is occupied the greatest minds in human history. Socrates emphasized pursuing the good life was living a life full of virtue. Epicurus emphasized pursuing pleasure. If you want the good life, you just have to like max out on pleasure. Aristotle emphasized Pursuit of happiness. By finding those truly good things that bring fulfillment and happiness, then you will find the good life. We can see bits and pieces of truth in all of those things, right? But for us, it might be even smaller on a smaller scale, and we're, maybe we're not philosophers in that way. Maybe it's the good life is more, is, is more close to home, like a hammock in a backyard, or a good cup of coffee on, on a Saturday morning. Oh, that's the good life. A good book. Maybe a really dear and close friend. Maybe a child of yours sometimes. Maybe going out in nature and just getting lost and being by yourself. Maybe silence. 
You can think of those things. If I ask the people around you, what is the good life for this person? When do they smile and start glowing and open up and become themselves? What, what is it that they're doing when they find the good life? You could probably answer that. Meaningful work, really anything could fulfill that. What's interesting to me, though, is this. Not that we all can find glimpses of the good life, not that philosophers have talked about it, not that we run into it here and there, but what's most interesting to me is the fact that we all long for it. All of us long for a good life. It's deep within our bones. We have this craving that exists, that animates us. Let me ask this, why is it there? Where did that come from? What does it mean that that craving exists in every single human being? What does that mean? How interesting, right? Does that mean something that we all look for in the good life is already embedded, appetized in us, waiting to be uncovered, waiting to be seen? Maybe. In Mere Christianity, uh, C.S. Lewis writes this. Let me read this, uh, this paragraph for us, a few sentences. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care. On the one hand, never to despise or to be unthankful for these earthly blessings. And on the other never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. That country, that image of the good life, that destination that we're all reaching for in everything that we do. Well, in the Old Testament, Moses received a vision of the good life. There was a revelation to Moses. God saying, you want to know the good life? Uh, let me tell you the good life. I'm going I'm to share this with you. And this happened on Mount Sinai. And Moses came down from the mountain to teach the people this good way of life that God has given them. It wasn't so easy, if you've read any part of the left-hand side of the Bible, it wasn't so easy for Israel to like, keep up with this, to be true to this good life. Easier said than done, right? But 1,500 years later, track with me, someone like Moses, a, a kind of Moses 2.0, comes down from a mountain to teach his closest disciples, his students, the way to the good life. Should sound familiar to us, right? We've seen this image before. But before this, this one who comes down from the mountains and teach, before he can ov even open his mouth, he is swarmed by people who want free health care, medical attention. They want to be healed. The demon-possessed, you name it, the lame, the deaf, they all reached out to him for healing. And listen to what Scripture says in verse 19. Power came out from him and healed all of them. What a bizarre scene. This man coming down from a mountain to teach God's people the good life. And before he can teach, 
He's swarmed by the masses, and anyone who can reach out and touch him is healed. Power radiating out of his body into the people who were closest to him, the proximity, wherever he went, there radiated the good life. What a bizarre scene. How wonderful, actually. Seeing what happens when wounded lives come in contact with this one. The good life just spreading out of his body like sunlight, something that these people in need, uh, that were in need, had no problem receiving. They didn't have some sort of intellectual objection before they reached out to touch him. No, they were in need, and so they reached out to touch him, and they were healed. Jesus, this one who came down from the mountain, he wasn't just talking about the good life. He was demonstrating the good life. He was dealing it out readily to these people, and these people were coming in contact with the good life, something that they had no qualms about receiving. They didn't didn't wonder, is this really the good life? No, not at all. They knew there was something about this that was absolutely the good life. Those who are desperate, who are diseased, who are hungry, there's something special about them because they can recognize the good life when it comes to them. Then, this is where it really gets interesting. Jesus, this is the man, who came down from this mountain to teach his disciples. He looks up, scripture goes out of its way to say, he looks up to his disciples. Not to these people in need that he just healed. By the way, can you imagine the wake that he has just left? With like lepers and the deaf and the blind and lame. Everybody behind him who's like looking at their bodies, going, what just happened? This is amazing. There must have been some sort of celebration or party or some ruckus that was happening, right? And Jesus in that moment, he doesn't turn to them, but he looks up to his disciples and he begins to teach them, saying this, blessed are you who are poor. He's not talking to them. He's talking to his disciples. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And he goes on. For those excluded, hated because of Jesus, not because you're a jerk, but because of Jesus, because you're faithful to Jesus and you're reviled and people reject you, guess what? You should rejoice because surely your reward is great in heaven. This sounds like some really strange upside-down way of inspiring people. If you hired like a motivational speaker, they wouldn't come in blazing like this, right? He's saying you've got the good life when you have no wealth. When you have nothing to satisfy your hunger. When your tears flow freely and you can't stop them, blessed are you. How is that the good life, folks? What kind of motivation is this? I think this is what he's saying. This is what I think. That for the least... The last, the diseased, those in desperate need who can't fool themselves into a counterfeit good life, who can't medicate themselves with what binging on Netflix or alcohol or sex and popular, whatever it is that we have at our disposal, those who don't have agency to fool themselves with the good life, these are the ones God is eager to give what is truly good. The space in which his goodness reigns. He's eager to give this kingdom to these people who don't have agency, who are truly poor. The fill of life that only he can give. And even restoring misfortune and loss, transforming it into gain, into true joy that never fades. 
This is just what it looks like, friends, when people come in contact and are able to touch, to make contact with the gracious life of God as he comes through. And like the other, this is like the other side of the same coin. That's all kind of like moving and interesting, right? And we kind of, we, we all memorize this part. If there's any part of the story, this is the part we memorize. This next part, I don't even know this is part of the story, some of us may think. On the other side of the coin, Jesus turns and he makes warning for those who don't care for his guidance on the good life. That's fine, Jesus. But like, who are you to, I don't really need to hear this teaching from Jesus today because he's just complicating things for me and I'm, I'm like comfortable and fine. I have the good life, Sean. Well, um, can I just read this warning to you and you can do whatever you want with this? But Jesus has some words for you. If we've already turned off his voice, he wants to speak to you. He wants to say this, but woe to you who are rich. For you have received your consolation. You're not going to get any more. That's all you'll ever get. Woe to you who are full now. You're going to be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now. For you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you. For that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. That's a little bit harder of a pill to swallow, isn't it? Blessed are you, woe to you. And in both of these passages, Jesus touches on the same four major ideas. Wealth, satisfaction, amusement, and respect. On the blessed side and on the woe side. Wealth, satisfaction, amusement, and respect. And this is actually pretty smart for him to speak to these, two, these four things. He challenges the very places that you and I tend to look for the good life. Wealth, satisfaction, amusement or entertainment, and respect or praise from other people. Wealth, Jesus says, think again. Wealth, you won't find it there. If you're satisfied with yourself now, you know what? If, if you found satisfaction, it's not going to last. You know what? It's going to get old. It will age out. It will leave you. And you won't be satisfied. If you're happy with your arrangement right now, if things are going pretty well for you right now, guess what happens when things start to get worse and you suffer? And trust me, there is always suffering ahead in some form. If you think life is a string of highs that you've got to patch together, or if the applause of other people will fill your tank, watch out. Woe to you. If this is where you look for the good life, it's all you'll ever get. And it will leave you. Like roots in a garden. Picture a garden or a tree like we heard from our Old Testament, our psalm reading. Like roots in a garden that reach for water deep below the surface of the earth. The streams of wealth, satisfaction, amusement, and respect. Those streams, those sources will dry out. And when those streams dry out, guess what happens to the garden? It dries out with it. And so those gardens planted on those streams, they live this anxious rat race of a life, always worrying that it's going to dry out and always trying to replenish it. But we know, if we're honest, friends, we know that that rat race is no life either, is it? It's actually just a life 
trying to not lose life. I should probably enjoy fasting a lot more than I do, especially as a priest. Uh, I'll admit that. I'm still working on it. Fasting was probably invented for people just like me, I'm sure, who this is hard for. Um, It's a discipline, though, that I think fits right into what we're talking about this morning. It's a discipline on how to feast only on God, to plant our roots in those life-giving streams that only God can provide. But it's a discipline. And it hurts, and it's not something that's intuitive for us. When we turn to fasting, our bodies and our habits and our minds and our hearts, they begin to detox from all the things that we have replaced to satisfy us that aren't God. Our addictions, those false promises that wealth and satisfaction and amusement and praise makes to us. Fasting holds out for the real deal, for the real life-giving streams under the surface. It's like a hunger strike that shows us eventually our real poverty, that exposes our real hungers, it exposes our, our boredom that we're always medicating, and it exposes our truest weaknesses. Fasting will not heal us, it's not a quick fix, but for a moment, fasting eliminates all of those distractions that get in the way for you seeing the real condition of your soul and how helpful that can be to be in touch with the truth, with reality by fasting. Because in that moment, when we see our real need, when we see our real hungers, we can ask God for healing for those hungers. We can notice what God's actually trying to do in our lives and better cooperate with him when we fast. For each of these four areas that Jesus warns us about, wealth, satisfaction, amusement, and respect, there are disciplines fasting kinds of disciplines that we can actually decide to participate in as an act of repentance and as a way of opening ourselves for the healing of God. Fasting, for instance, gives new direction for satisfaction. Prayer gives new direction for amusement and the need for respect from others. And instead, prayer points us to the wonder and the fear of God. Tithing gives new direction to our greed and our control by transforming all of those worries and anxieties into generosity and into a trust in the resources that only heaven can provide for us. None of those things are easy and none of those you guys are gonna leave going, you know what I'm gonna do today? I'm gonna pick one of those fasts and I'd be totally inspired. Probably not, let's be honest. You're all gonna walk out of here thinking of ways that you can avoid talking about this with your spouse and not taking any of these seriously. And I get it, I'm the same way. Let's just like forget Sean even brought up those disciplines because that sounds awful. But can I just encourage you? You don't have to be afraid of these disciplines. You don't have to be afraid, and really it's not the disciplines you're afraid of, I think. You don't have to be afraid of the real conditions of your soul. You can look at them square in the face and announce the resurrection because God has laid a claim on your life. So fast, pray, give, These are big three that for centuries have shaped Christian maturity, a dependency on the kingdom of God. You can do all of these things without fear, knowing that God will see the needs of your soul and respond with the good life. These practices, they refuse to live on anything else other than the goodness of God. And that's why they're so helpful and attractive to us, if they are at all. 
Another thing about these disciplines, this last thing I'll say about this, is these disciplines actually help us take our, our stated beliefs, the beliefs that we're about to stand up and read in the prayer book as we announce our faith, the things that we say, even the way we come forward, the things that we do in the liturgy, those are all like stated and acted beliefs that we have. And they're even maybe hidden in our hearts. These disciplines, they put some stress on those beliefs. Do you really believe that? And they give us an opportunity to actually see those beliefs enacted. To see our lives put a little bit of weight, a little bit of trust on the things we say we have so much faith in. So that our whole life can actually be situated on these beliefs and can function on these beliefs. Like we believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the resources of the kingdom of God. Do you really? One way to find out is to fast. Place the full weight of your trust in those things and experience them bearing fruit in your life so that your life can actually function on these beliefs. And they're not just stored away somewhere in your head or in your heart. If I asked you to walk, for instance, across a piece of wood 150 feet in the air, okay, you would not do it, right? Of course not. In theory, you would not do it. I, maybe some of you, I don't know, you probably wouldn't. You shouldn't want to do that. You know that that piece of wood could hold you, though. I mean, it feels big enough. Let's say it's like a four-by-four four or something. It could hold your weight 150 feet in the air. Sure, right? In theory, we believe this. But you still wouldn't do it. Why? Because you'd be afraid of falling, and rightly so. But if I asked you to go visit the new Central Austin Public Library and go to the sixth floor and walk across those wooden planks, you wouldn't, e you wouldn't even realize that you were making an act of faith, right? You wouldn't even realize that you're like putting your actual weight on a piece of wood 150 feet in the, I don't know, it looks crazy high up there. I just went the other day with my wife. It's beautiful. We're late to the party. If you haven't been, you should totally go. It's beautiful. But you wouldn't even, it wouldn't even occur to you that on the sixth floor, like a million feet up in the air, you are putting your life on a piece of wood and you could plummet to your death. It doesn't even occur to you. Our faith in God is not just something we stand up and read off of the page. It's not something we just come up and hold our hands out and eat. It's not just a sweet fragrance that we smell. Our faith in God is meant to put the full weight of our trust on. It's actually meant to function like a motor, like an engine in our lives. Something that we can depend on, like those planks of wood in the Austin Public Library that we don't even need to think about. We put our whole trust and weight of our lives in God. I'm afraid that so many of us go on stating or even really believing in our head a faith in God without actually ever living out a faith in God. Does that make sense? I'm afraid that so many of us, we say we believe these things, and you probably do, but when it comes time to actually putting your weight of your trust on that, you're not so sure. You kind of keep a foot on dry ground just to make sure, just, just to be secure and be safe. But in those moments when God invites you to come into his reality, to put your trust in him, to actually trust God with things like your future, with things like the way that people perceive you, with things like your wealth, with things like your amusement, or your satisfaction when you put your full weight on God for meeting all of those needs, I wonder what could happen. That is a disciple of Jesus. Someone who is willing to reach out and touch him 
as he comes near. Someone who's really willing to put all of their trust and their hope for healing in this person, knowing that in all four areas of those big four that we just listed, that only God can satisfy us in those needs. And friends, can I just say in closing, when you put your trust in the good life that only God provides, like Jeremiah 17 talked about, you'll find that your delight is in him. You, you actually find delight in God, you find a joy in his presence that only he can give. When you seek first his kingdom, all that other stuff that you worry about, it gets added. It gets arranged in a proper order. When you learn from Jesus how to do life, the good life, you find it's kind of light, kind of easy with him. There's something detached from all those concerns from all those worries that keep you up at night. And even when death in your life inevitably comes to stop your life, guess what? Resurrection, you will be raised. When poverty threatens you, when people revile you, when all of your comforts fade away, you, when you put your trust in God, will be like a well-watered tree whose leaves are always green. Even when the heat comes. When we come to this table, what's happened, I wish we could see it with both eyes, you know? When we come to this table, our lives are being repotted. They're being replanted in God's garden. They're being watered by his living stream. What's being left behind are the notions that hoarding and worrying about money is better than actually bringing it forward and offering it to God. You even see that in our baskets. That's what that symbolizes. And not just symbolizes, but people in this church actually put 10% of their income in those baskets and bring them forward as not just sort of some symbolic offering, but as a way of putting their worry about money in check and, it, and worshiping God with all of their wealth because he's the only one that can provide for them. It really happens. When people come forward to receive Holy Eucharist, they're substituting all the other substances in their life that they use to numb their pain and instead bring their pain before the one who can heal it. Fast, pray, give. Friends, that your life would be opened to the grace of God in Christ. I pray that this morning would be a time for change and some of us who have resisted in one of those areas, that we would come forward like those sick, those wounded, those lame, those deaf, those blind, coming out to reach the one who can heal them. You'll get a glimpse of that as we all come forward this morning and receive Holy Eucharist. Can we take a moment of silence and ask the Holy Spirit, not Sean, but the Holy Spirit to speak to you about those ways that you can hand over your trust to the Lord. Let's take a moment. You're listening to Resurrection South Austin, a community of faith, learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at resaustin.com.